Hi, this is Robert Rowland. Welcome to this message from James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. At the start of this sermon, my microphone uh, that I was wearing on my tie was not turned on, and someone had turned the other microphone off. So I'm going to briefly substitute some audio, and in just about one and a half minutes from now, you'll hear the regular audio from the main publication. So I apologize that my uh, audio and my lips are not going to sync right now. James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 is one of my favorite passages in the book of James. And it is a passage that has motivated me for the last 40 years to make at least one daily prayer request. And that is to ask God for wisdom. It's my habit. And even if I get so busy, I don't feel like I have a lot of time to pray, which none of us should feel like that, but we do. I I still try to find time to just say, uh, Lord, I've got a big day ahead of me. Would you please grant me for wisdom? What's ahead? So this is an incredibly important passage uh, for me. So we're going to look at James chapter 1, verse 5, and then some of the information that follows it. But it's the verse that tells us, If anyone lacks wisdom, let, us, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth or scoldeth uh, not. Or here it says, Without finding fault and it will be given uh, to you. And so this is an incredibly important passage, and it's a passage with a promise that if we ask God for wisdom, he grants it to us. But so last time we talked about this idea of intentional uh, rejoicing during purposeful testing. We found out that tests and trials come in our life for a reason, and we have to learn how to intentionally rejoice. That's why James says, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. Uh, but we, we ended last time with a, a very valuable question. Of course, we talked about the old African proverb, the smooth seas don't make for skilled sailors. In other words, part of trials coming into our life is to strengthen us, to make us strong. It's like you go to uh, a gym and you lift weights and it's hard and it's difficult and you're supposed to go until you fail and it's always that last repetition when you fail that actually counts. That's the one that tears the muscle down, forces your body to rebuild it, and so you're supposed to lift to the point of failure. When you fail, that's the one that counts. And uh, it's kind of interesting because you, you maybe you've lifted... Uh, 15 reps two different times on the third set, you only get to the eighth or ninth rep, and then you just you give up. And, and But it's always that one, the one you give up on, that counts. So you give it your last ounce of struggle. But we talked about what it meant to have an unswerving constancy that we keep toward the goal in Jesus Christ no matter what. And we talked about the definition of endurance, which is a growing determination in the face of adversity based on a hope in Jesus Christ. And that's that we should endure. And it doesn't mean when it says that you'll be perfect that it means we're without sin, but what it means is that we have matured to be able to accomplish the goal that Christ has for our lives and that it is his will. But how do we do all this? How do you count it joy? How do you mature? The fact is we need wisdom. Uh, when trials come... Uh, sometimes you want to do stupid stuff. Now, Dave Ramsey has a saying I really like. He says, when you do stupid, you reap desperate. But I think maybe we need another saying is, when things are desperate, some people do stupid. Uh, because a lot of people have desperate times, trials, difficulties, but they don't pray uh, for God to solve those things for them. So how do we face trials? And how do we persevere? 
How do we overcome them with joy? And so James answers that. He says, if we want to be nothing, notice it how it ended verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work that she may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking in nothing. And then immediately he turns around and he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So in other words, we should lack nothing, but in order to do that, we need to realize we probably lack wisdom and we need to ask God uh, for that wisdom. Now, the context here is everything. We've been told we're to intentionally rejoice, uh, but it just doesn't come easily. So one Bible translator, I think, has probably done good justice to the Greek here. He says, and if in the process, that is the process of going through trials and testings, any of you does not know how to meet a particular problem, in other words, you don't have the wisdom to meet that problem, ask God for wisdom. I think that's what it probably means when it says lacking uh, nothing. Now, if you're a little confused and frustrated by this high goal of not lacking anything, James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Uh, now, it's interesting when it says the ask of God who gives to all men liberally, the phrase uh, God who gives is actually uh, to deutantus theu, which means the giving God. It says, ask the giving God for wisdom. Uh, and he gives it liberally. I, I love the fact that it says he's the giving God. That's a beautiful title for for God right here in the book of James. And he, he will give it not grudgingly, but generously. What a beautiful thing. Now, we need to talk a little bit about what he means when he talks about wisdom. And we're going to spend a little more time on this in a minute. But let me just say that there's a big difference between the Greek concept of wisdom and the Hebrew concept of wisdom. And remember, James is writing to an audience of Jews, so which one is he more likely to follow? The Hebrew concept of wisdom. The Greek concept of wisdom was just knowledge and cleverness, a, a learnedness, a, a skill for something. But in the Old Testament, it usually means that it's a practical or moral uh, or special insight given by God. It's principles for living. It's, it's rules for life. It's how to get by in life. Now, there are uh, several different words in Hebrew for wisdom, and there is a word that means a skill uh, for example, if you have a job and you have to have a skill for that job, you should pray and ask God for the skill to do that job. I do that a lot. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, I went out to Kodak headquarters here in Dallas, and I don't even know if they still have offices because we don't buy film anymore. We use digital cameras. But I went out to Kodak, and, and they had had a number of engineers out there. They had this weird problem. Uh, they'd get there early in the morning, and somebody would send a print job to a printer, and all of a sudden nobody else in the building could print for the rest of the day. So whoever got there first got to print. Nobody else could for the rest of the day. And they'd had three different engineers out there, and some of them with initials after my name that I still haven't or after their name that I still haven't earned. And uh, so then I went out, and the first day I was so frustrated. I'm sure like everybody else was before me. And I, I worked all day long, couldn't find the problem. I reviewed everything. Then I went home that night, and I, I got on my knees, and I told the Lord, I said, I have absolutely no idea what's wrong at this place. It should be plainly obvious to me. And I said, but I know it's obvious to you. Would you please share the, what needs to be done with me so I can help these people? And I went out the next day and within 10 minutes saw the problem. And it was a simple problem. It was easy to fix. It was something that had been misconfigured and I changed it and all of a sudden uh, I'm out of there in just a matter of minutes. And, and, uh, but 
there is a sense in which God gives us the skills we need for our job. Don't ever believe that you can earn your job simply out of your own resources. After all, Deuteronomy 8 says, It is the Lord thy God that gives, gives you your next breath. <laughs> we don't have our next breath if it didn't come from God. We certainly don't have the skills that we need. Uh, but wisdom in a broader sense in Hebrew, the hakma of wisdom is the Hebrew word, is that it, it is a skill for living. It's a skill for seeing God's perspective in things. Now, I want you to notice that James says there is a prayer we can pray that has a guarantee. If you ask God for wisdom, he gives that to you generously, or he gives it to you abundantly. And what a great promise that is. Now, a great example of someone who did this is Solomon. You remember that Solomon uh, got ready to start his role as king, and God told him, ask for what you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon thought about it for a moment, and he made a very wise response. He says, now, Lord my God, you have made my servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. In other words, what is he asking for? He's asking for wisdom. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And so he asked God for wisdom, and in response, what did, what did God do? He says, because you've had this in mind, you didn't ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you asked for long life, but you asked for yourself what? Wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. And if we go on and read the rest of that, that response... He says, Behold, I do hereby, according to your word, I hereby give you a wise and discerning heart. There was no one like you before you, nor afterwards will one like you arise. And, of course, he became profoundly known for his wisdom, so much so that the Queen of Sheba made a long trip and brought a huge envoy, gave many gifts, and she came to test him with questions to see if he was as wise as she had heard. And when she observed his kingdom and observed his rule and heard his wisdom, and the Bible says he even had wisdom about the animal kingdom. He knew about the different animals and he knew the differences between them. And he had knowledge in all kinds of areas that she marveled at the wisdom that he had. The Bible also tells us there's not been another king since Solomon that had the same glory of his kingdom that Solomon had. So God answered Solomon generously, and God loves to give generously or give liberally. Now, this is an adverb in the, the Greek here that's only used in this one place. And when a, a Greek word is only used one time in the whole New Testament, there's a scholarly term for that. It's called a hapax legomena, which means the only occurrence of this word. Uh, but it means without hesitation, without condition, without reservation. In other words, there's no... There's no hesitation on the part of God to give you wisdom. He wants you to have that. Think about this if you're a parent or if you know someone who's a parent. Don't you think your parents uh, will be delighted or those of you who are parents, aren't you delighted if a child comes to you and says, Dad or Mom, I need your wisdom on this. We want to give them wisdom. We want to save them from having to learn lessons the hard way. We'd like to tell them what we've learned through our life and save them the hassle. And when you have a child who actually listens to your wisdom, it's a wonderful thing. And God certainly wants that for us. Now, when you connect it with the fact that it's just said that he is God the giver, 
basically. He is the giving God. Then this also means that he gives generously or, or, or liberally, uh, or another part, phrase is that he gives with a wide heart. I think that's a beautiful phrase. Now, not only does he give us liberally, but it says he gives to us without reproach. Now, this is an interesting idea. Um, for one thing, he doesn't make us feel guilty that we didn't use the last wisdom he gave us. Now, imagine that your, your child came to you and they said, Dad, I really need your wisdom about this situation. They start telling you about a situation at work and they don't know quite how to handle it or a situation at school. They're not quite sure how to do it. And imagine what would happen if you responded to them and said, You know what? Before I tell you how to handle this, i got to tell you, it really disappointed me that you didn't use the last wisdom I gave you. The last time you sought my counsel, you didn't listen to me. You remember how that wound up? Now, if you knew that your parent was going to nag you and, and uh, they were going to criticize you, and they were going to uh, upbraid you for the last thing that you didn't do, then they're probably not going to want to come again. And God says that he's not going to scold us. We've already learned our lesson from the last time we didn't use his wisdom. We already know that. He is eager to give it to us again. It's like you come, you ask, I'll give. Now what happens after I give that wisdom to you is up to us, right? And so uh, he, he doesn't scold us. He doesn't, he doesn't give it uh, grudgingly. Uh, in other words, he doesn't he didn't hold a grudge at the last time we didn't do something right or the fact that we went through a situation recently, we didn't ask God's wisdom. I, I think about Joshua, you know, and here he is and he's leading the conquest of the promised land and uh, before they conquer the walls of Jericho, Joshua prays. God tells them specifically how to overcome Jericho. They're to walk around it one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, they walk around it seven times. Then they're supposed to blow the trumpet with a, a ram's horn and they all shout Hallel, which is the Hebrew word for pray and the walls came tumbling down all except for one section where there was somebody that uh, had trusted in God and was going to be saved. But interestingly enough, in the very next battle, the battle of Ai, they're so overconfident from having whooped a huge city like Jericho that had walls that were 48 feet high and 32 feet thick and was impenetrable by human standards of that time that they thought they could handle the little tiny town of Ai that had no protection whatsoever and the Israelites had to run in defeat before Ai and 7,000 men died that day. But what you notice is that Joshua didn't ask for wisdom. He didn't pray. And so the Bible says he fell before the Lord and poured out his complaint before the Lord. And, I, you know, we shouldn't complain against God, but aren't you glad you have a God that listens when you complain? He poured out his complaint, and then God says, well, there's a reason you didn't seek me. Later, Joshua fails to do the same thing. He and the elders of Israel fell to pray before making a treaty with the Gibeonites. But Joshua is a wonderful example that when you ask for wisdom, there's some great victory. When you don't seek God's wisdom, there's some failure. But God, when you ask for wisdom, doesn't say, hey, I'm not giving it to you. You didn't listen last time. Uh, he gives ungrudgingly. He's delighted for us to ask for wisdom. And, and he gives his wisdom in a way that shows his love and his care for us. When the few times that my kids have come and sought my counsel on something, I... I listened, and I was patient, and I was kind, and I responded with love because I was delighted they were asking. 
Another translation, I think this is the Phillips translation, if I remember correctly, of 1.5 says this. If any of you need wisdom, you should ask of God. He will give it to you. God is generous and will give wisdom to all who ask him in a way that shows his love and care. And that's a very good translation. By the way, we should highlight that one phrase there, and we'll talk about it again in a moment. God doesn't give his wisdom to everybody. He gives his wisdom to all who ask. God didn't force his wisdom on anyone. He gives it to those who ask. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2 has this to say. For if you cry out, now crying out in the Old Testament, by the way, is a little different than praying. Praying I can do silently. I can stand up here and pray, and I can even pray while I'm preaching. God help me with what I'm trying to say. And I can send up those little flare prayers. Crying out was something that was out loud. It was verbal. People around you could have heard it. It would have been saying, oh God, I need your wisdom. And that's not a bad thing to do. Uh, and he says, if you cry out for understanding, and that's kind of a, a synonym for wisdom in the Old Testament. If you cry out for understanding, if you lift your voice, again, this is a verbal out loud thing, for insight, if you seek her like silver and search her out like treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God you will find, for the Lord will give wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So there again, that's another, this is a, basically another James 1.5, which is James 1.5 of the Old Testament, that it's a prayer with a guarantee. If you ask wisdom, God's going to give it to you. Uh, and it says that in both Old and New Testament. So wisdom is a good thing from God. Jesus was telling a story to his disciples about a, a person who uh, was constantly sought after to, to respond to requests. And he says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? And one of those good things is wisdom. Wisdom is the good thing. And uh, God wants to give us the good things. Now, a parent doesn't always give their child everything they want because sometimes they want something bad. Sometimes they want something stupid. Sometimes they want to go do something and you're afraid of what kind of influences that they'll be subjected to. But when our children ask for something good and wholesome, it's our desire to give it to them and, and God even more so. He is ready to answer our prayers and his readiness should be a motive for us to pray. And, and by the way, when it says, let him ask, you could also translate that, you should ask. <laughs> you should ask God for wisdom. Uh, that's, that's important. Now, again, to whom does he give wisdom? Not just to everybody. It does say, who gives to all without reservation, but you need to go back up in the verse a little bit. It says, let him ask from God who gives to all, all what? All who ask him. Let him ask of God who gives to all who ask him without reservation and without reproaching and it will be given to him if you ask him for wisdom. Now, by the way, we shouldn't walk through life under the assumption that we have wisdom already. Now, we may have been taught some great things by our parents. Uh, we may have studied God's word in the past and we may have a lot of wisdom built up from years of experience and years of studying God's word. Quite frankly, I don't think I have ever reached the place, even after 40 years of the ministry and 40 years of preaching God's word, that I feel like I have adequate wisdom for every day. In fact, my habit is, first thing every morning, my first prayer to God, after, after I say, Father, I say, God, please grant me wisdom. If I don't have time to pray for anything else, I pray for wisdom. Uh, because I think it is absolutely essential that we do so. And it should be a habitual 
prayer request. We should come to him at all times and habitually wait on him for guidance and for direction. Who gets up in the morning, he puts on his uniform, and he what the weather is, and I already know how to fly a plane, so I'm not going to go to the flight briefing. Well, you don't go to the flight briefing. You don't know where you're going to fly. You don't know what the satellite reconnaissance is that tells you whether or not there's any flack that you're going to be getting from ground fire. You don't know what the capabilities of the enemy are. You don't know what the mission objective is. You don't know about what the weather is at different altitudes that you might be flying into. If you don't go to the flight briefing, there's a good chance you could crash. And I think when we get up and we start down the day and we don't take a few moments out to listen to God. Now, see, prayer is a two-way thing. We should ask Him for wisdom, but then we ought to have our Bible open and start reading to find it. By the way, I, I found a little trick years ago, and you should try this trick in your own life and see if it, it, it works for you like it works for me. When I'm needing wisdom in a particular area, I open up the book of Proverbs. Now, I'm not saying that's the only book you can open up. I could open up the Gospels and do it too, but Proverbs is just where I go for wisdom. It's, it's one of what the Bible, uh, one of the books in the Bible called the wisdom books, okay? So I open it up, and when I start reading the book of Proverbs, and I usually start reading based on what the day of the month is. So today is the 14th, so I would read Proverbs 14 would be the first place I'd read if I don't find the answer there. But what I do is I look for an answer to my question. I need wisdom. Maybe it's a financial decision or it's a decision about my employment or it's what to do with one of the kids. And so what I do is I say, God, I need wisdom on this. And then I start reading Proverbs. And I will read in every verse, I will look to see, is God speaking to me about this problem through this verse? And sometimes I have to go a chapter or two, but I never go very far till God shows me something in his word that is him speaking back to me. And I can, I can promise you that if you will ask God for wisdom in faith, and you will open your Bible and start looking for that wisdom as you read through Proverbs or read through the Gospels, that you will find the wisdom you're looking for. Now, don't think, however, I think it takes, I think you have to be intentional to get wisdom. I don't know that you can just say, God, I need wisdom today, and then you don't ever open your Bible. You don't seek the counsel of godly people around you. You just kind of go about your day. I'm not sure how effective that is. I think God can still answer you. He can still give you wisdom. He can still speak to your heart. But it very much is effective if after you ask him for wisdom, you go looking for it in a source that he's already supplied. It just works better. But constant waiting on God and relying on him, that's what real wisdom is. Say, I think, again, a lot of believers go through the day thinking, well, I've already got it. I've already got wisdom. I, I have an impression. I have impulses. I think that they're leading me in the right direction, but it's something vague. Anytime I've asked God for wisdom and looked for it in his word, he gave me something specific, not something that is vague. Now, let's, let's clarify a little bit more what wisdom is. And it's interesting because the Bible refers to the seven pillars of wisdom. There's a whole lot of ideas out there. Uh, what it is. I'm going to share with you my version of it, uh, certainly. But it, to have wisdom is to apply knowledge. So in other words, knowledge is just a bunch of facts. Wisdom is knowing how to apply those facts to our life. To, to have wisdom is to apply knowledge to everyday life so we can obtain knowledge by reading God's Word and wisdom by meditating on that knowledge. Um, I know for, for me... 
for a lot of years, I would hear other Christians talk about having a life verse. And, and I, they, it was like they had found one verse in the Bible that was their verse. And I would think, what in the world is a life verse? I've read the Bible for years, and I don't have one. I've had a lot of favorite Bible verses. I mean, Isaiah 41.10 has always been one of my favorite. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 40.31, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I got a whole lot of other famous verses. And then one day I was reading Psalm 75. Uh, in King James, it's just promotion. It's the only time you see the word promotion in the King James Bible. Promotion comes not from the east nor the west nor the south, but God is the judge. He makes low and makes high. If you read in the Geneva Bible, which is what I have in front of me here, it says, for to come to preferment, that means to be promoted. <laughs> it's neither from the east nor the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He makes low and he makes high. And, I, and it used to just bug me when I read that verse. Because every time I, I went out as a, a Cub Scout or a Weeblows or a Boy Scout and we used a compass, there were always four points on the compass. And, but that verse only mentions three. It mentions east, west, and south, but it leaves out the north. And, and he says that promotion doesn't come from the east, west, or south. Well, why didn't he mention the north? And then I read Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 11 and found out that sacrifices were always killed on the north side of the altar. And I learned for me the wisdom that God gave me and why that became my life verse is that the way you get promoted or the way you advance in life is to live sacrificially to bless others, to make others successful, to help others. It's not, it's not the stepping on people to climb the corporate ladder. It's not trying to advance your cause at the sake of someone else. It's that you make others successful. I have a boss. My job is to make him look good. And the thing is, wherever he goes, he'll take me along. And that's been true in my, in my corporate career, certainly. Now, let's talk a little bit about wisdom versus knowledge. Again, I said knowledge is facts. Wisdom is knowing how to use it. But let's go a little deeper here. Uh, knowledge is a pursuit of the intellect. And the thing is, uh, I think it was Shakespeare who said, much learning doth make thee mad. Uh, I have known a people that... Uh, went and got graduate degrees and, and went in serious error because of what they learned. Uh, I have a son that did this, and he, when I heard he was going to go get a Master uh, of Arts in History, it concerned me because I know that there's a secular history and there's a biblical history and that they don't agree on, on church history at all. They're, they're totally separate. I also know that it's the normal experience that as, as a person goes further in education, they tend to become more liberal, not only politically, they tend to become more liberal in their theology. And so it's, it's a, a wonder when we have somebody like Dr. Woodworth that still is a conservative Christian that holds conservative beliefs, and I'm grateful for that. Um, you know, it's a wonder that I have a three-year graduate degree, and I, I, I am not liberal. Uh, in, at least I don't think I am. Uh, but the, the point is, is that much learning can lead us astray unless we have wisdom. See, you can get a lot of knowledge, and it'll lead you astray unless you have wisdom to know the proper interpretation of that knowledge, to know how to apply that knowledge. So a lot of people have great intelligence, know a lot of facts, and they still pursue error, and they still do stupid stuff. But wisdom is practical skills for living. 
It's knowing the right way to live. It's seeing life from God's perspective. And that may be one of my favorite definitions. It means that instead of looking through human reasoning to come to conclusion, we say, God, how do you view this? God, how do you say this? God, what does your word say about this situation? And we listen to God's perspective instead of our perspective. And I, I, I have noticed people that went astray start reading philosophical materials. And, uh, but the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians that we should beware of men's philosophies and traditions. We should beware of those things. We need to make sure we're listening to God, not the traditions of men, not the philosophies uh, of men. And then wisdom is discerning and doing the will of God. It means that you know the difference between right and wrong, but you know the difference between what is God's will and what isn't. That's what discernment is. And then you want to do God's will. Now, the amazing thing is you can have knowledge without wisdom and you can have wisdom without a whole lot of knowledge. They don't have to be interchangeable. I know people uh, that in my life that had, did not have a great education, but they were very wise. They knew God's word. They knew how to seek God. They knew how to obey God. And yet they didn't have a, a master of divinity degree. They didn't have a doctor's degree. But they were wise. And I would rather follow a wise man without a degree than a, a fool with a degree any day. And so there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 2, listen to how it's described here. For wisdom will enter your heart. Now I want you to see how practical wisdom is as you listen to this. And knowledge will be pleasing yourself. Discretion will watch over you. You'll have good judgment. You'll, you'll know what's right and what's wrong. That's what discretion is. Understanding will protect you in order to deliver you from the way of evil. And there's all kinds of evil out there, from a man who speaks devious things, those who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in ways of darkness, those who are happy to do evil, for they delight in the deviousness of evil, who are crooked in their ways and devious in their paths. And then he also says, Wisdom will deliver you from a strange woman, from a foreign woman who flatters you with her sayings. She who forsakes the partner of her youth has forgotten the covenant of her God, for her house sinks to death, and the dead are her paths. Of all who go to her, none shall return, nor do they reach the paths of life. He says wisdom will protect you. It's practical. It keeps you from making bad decisions when you're walking down the street and someone's trying to call you away from the righteous life. It keeps you from being influenced by the wrong kinds of people. It gives you discretion to know good from evil. It's, wisdom is a very practical thing. Now, Proverbs 9 has this interesting statement. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Now, there's a whole lot of thinking about what these seven pillars are. Some Bible scholars simply say, well, the seven pillars are the idea that wisdom is a big, spacious uh, house with lots of riches in it, and that's it. Okay. Uh, others try to assign something to each of the seven pillars. and uh, But... The Bible doesn't tell us specifically what the seven pillars are, and you can find various lists written by various authors. In fact, as T.E. Lawrence uh, actually wrote a book called The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which doesn't relate to anything I'm about to say here. But I, I, I do think that there's seven areas of life that we really need to learn 
uh, God's perspective on things. One is design. A lot of people go through life never liking themselves, always trying to change themselves, trying to conform to the world and do what the world does so they feel like they'll be more accepted in the world. We need to know that God designed us, each one of us, to be a little different, each one of us to be a different frame around a picture of Jesus Christ, and that we're each supposed to represent something different about Christ, and that we need to accept the way that God made us. Now, sometimes we've ruined what God has made us, and we ought to work on being healthy, and we ought to work on, on uh, keeping fit and things of that nature. But we need to accept that God put us in the family that, uh, that he wanted us to be in at the time he wanted us to be in that family so that we would learn how to present something about Jesus Christ to the world. Then we need to learn about authority. God's given us authority in four areas of life. I have a boss. That's my employment. I have to be under authority to him if I want to keep having a job. Uh, there is a government. And uh, sometimes we have good people in government. Sometimes we have bad people in government. But Romans 13 tells me as long as they're not asking me to disobey God's word, I should try to live peaceably by getting along with those in my government. And we've got uh, here at the state level, uh, we've got some real heroes. And in the national level, not so much. Uh, but the thing is, as long as I'm not being asked to violate Scripture, then I should try to live a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, and I need to pray for those who are in authority. Uh, also, in home, there is an authority in our home. Uh, now, my, I'm supposed to check with my wife before I make rash decisions because she's my radar. keeps me from flying into a mountain. But ultimately, the final authority in our home, other than, uh, of course, Jesus Christ is the authority in our home, but that's me. I have to make those decisions. I have to... Uh, if, if there is a problem, if there is a disagreement, as, as someone once said, the, the buck stops at my, my door or at my desk. Uh, there, there's also, uh, you know, we, there's also a church, and I didn't put that one up there. I had two up there, <laughs> work and employment both. I should have said at church because Hebrews 13 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, for they must give an, uh, as though they were, had authority, because they must give an account for your souls. Uh, one day, the pastor and I will have to give an account for whether or not we were faithful in our ministry to you, whether we taught you the whole counsel of the Word of God, whether we preached expository sermons or just preached whatever topics came to mind for us. Did we teach you the Word of God? That's going to be important. Then there's responsibility. That means we need to understand that God put us on earth to serve Him and to serve others, not to go around demanding our own rights all the time. And that seems to be what's wrong with society. They want to protest and they want to burn stuff down. They want to break through store windows to demand their rights. But, but Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. He's our example. He didn't demand His rights. He came to serve us, and He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, so I know that we're, we're certainly not above that. And then there's suffering. We have to understand that suffering is a part of life. Uh, we're told in, in the New Testament, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We're going to suffer. Other things are going to happen to us, and it's going to make us suffer, but... If we understand suffering properly, as James was telling us, to count it all joy when we fall into different kinds of trials, we know that God uses that suffering to smooth off our rough edges. He uses that suffering to drive us to our knees, to pray to Him more, to communicate with Him more. He uses that suffering to equip us to help others who are suffering. Uh, it's, it was, uh, of course, 
Chris and Desiree are such a blessing to our church and a blessing to us, and I'm sure they're listening online with Jubilee and Selah right now, and uh, it's, it's so much fun. Uh, they sent me a video a few weeks ago of Selah. Uh, she's 18 months old, and she's sitting on a... Uh, uh, on the, the couch there watching the computer and Brother Dennis is leading singing and apparently he was peppy that morning because she's doing a little jig on the couch to his uh, his music and you know what a joy what a joy to watch that um, but you know one of the things that they've gone through learning how to deal with a child with autism is I've been able to put them in touch with a couple of others that have Children that have autism, and it's such a comfort to talk to other people that are in the same boat with you. And so when you go through suffering and, and you know, my experience with pain, I, I am very sympathetic to people in pain. I'm very sympathetic when people hurt because of the weather, because I do too. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the fact that one of the worst parts about being sick is going from doctor to doctor to doctor, and every doctor takes different tests, and every doctor makes you wait for the test. And sometimes the worst part about being ill is waiting for the test results. Uh, but suffering helps us to serve others, and it smooths out the rough spots in our own characters. And then there's the principle of ownership, and this is understanding that everything we have belongs to God. It's not your paycheck. It's God's. He gave you the ability. It's the Lord thy God that giveth thee power to get wealth, Deuteronomy 8. Uh, it's his. Everything is his. Cattle on a thousand hills are all his. Everything you have is his, and we are stewards of what he entrusts us with, but we need to be faithful stewards. That's why we need to tithe. That's why we need to support the Lord's work. That's why we need to pray before we make a big financial decision, because we're managing someone else's money. It's in our account, but it's the Lord's money. We need to pray about those things. But understanding that God entrusts things to us, but he owns it all. Then there's the principle of freedom. And that is the idea that we should not be slaves to sin. We need to know how to claim victory over sin. Uh, that's why in Romans 6 it, it says, uh, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were, were baptized into his death. Therefore, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And, and we're told in that chapter that sin shall not have dominion over us. We're free in Christ. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're now slaves to Jesus. And then the principle of success. Uh, my definition of success, and it's the best one I've found, is not uh, that you've got a big 401k or a big check or that you have a lot of fame, power, and fortune. This is my definition of success. Success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God regardless of the consequences. Let me say that one more time. It's worth writing down, by the way. Success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of the consequences. That's what success is. And by the way, there is a way you can find success in life. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law, talking about the Bible, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You want to have success? Read his word, memorize those verses that really speak to you, and then meditate on them. Chew on them till they mean something to you. Psalm 75, 6 means something to me now because I chewed on it long enough to figure out what it meant. There are verses in 1 Timothy, a lot of verses in 1 Timothy. I memorized that whole book, and I meditated on it, I chewed on it. And there's a lot of verses that I now have great insight to because I spent time on that. But success comes from meditating on God's Word. By the way, the quickest way you can raise your grades in school is to start memorizing Bible verses. Now, 
it is a prayer with a guarantee, but it's also a prayer with a condition. And the condition is that we ask in faith, nothing wavering. So James is kind of shifting gears here a little bit. Uh, the focus up till now has been God's generous and giving nature, but now he's going to turn the focus to the nature of our asking. God, it is God's nature to give. It is God's nature to answer a prayer for wisdom. But we need to make sure our nature is ready to receive that wisdom. And so uh, just in the same way that in Ephesians we had that, but God, <laughs> uh, which changes the direction uh, of the passage. Here we have, uh, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. There's some prerequisites to getting wisdom. Uh, and we've got to be wise in our asking. The first thing is we have to believe in faith. Uh, we have to believe and not doubt. The diakrinomos, which is the Greek word for doubt, means vacillating, going back and forth. A diakrinomos actually means two judgments. You go from this judgment to this judgment to this judgment to this judgment. It's like you think this, then you think this, then you think this again, then you think this again. And, and you, can't, you can't make your decisions. So it reminds me of Joshua asking the children of Israel, you know, how long will you halt between two opinions? You know, you need, you need to figure out what you're going to do. You're going to serve God or are you going to serve yourselves? You're going to serve the gods of, of the promised land. What are you going to do? How long are you going to halt here? Um, and we've got to ask in faith. And we, we don't want to come to God like a wave on the sea that's driven with the wind, it's tossed about, and uh, it's interesting. We'll talk more about what it means, the horizontal and vertical there in just a moment. But God also says that a double-minded man is unstable in his own ways. God's not pleased by a double-minded man. He's not pleased by somebody who has two souls. Dipsychos, the D-I means two, and the psychos is what we get psychology or soul from, suke, uh, means to be two-souled. You've got one soul that's trying to hang on to the world and the other soul that's trying to serve God. And what did Jesus say about that? No man can serve two masters. You, you're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to try to cleave to one while you're trying to hold the other. It's going to rip you in two. You can't do that. Uh, he says a double-minded man is unstable in all he does. He's like a staggering drunk uh, that's going around. And our answer to our request for wisdom depends on whether or not we can ask in faith. Now, faith here is more than just trusting the facts about God, it is relying upon God. Now, let me, let me explain the difference. There's a whole lot of things I believe about God. I know He loves me. I know He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for me. I know Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But there are times in my Christian experience that I don't feel those things. I know them, but I don't feel them. Or I, maybe I know those things, and maybe I feel them, but I don't rely upon them. See, to ask God for something in faith means you are relying on God to answer accordingly. That's what it means to trust God, is to trust on Him and rely on His promises. So it's not just a belief in a proposition that my prayer is going to be answered. It means that I'm confident that God's going to give me the wisdom that when it followed leads me where I need to go. And you wait on God's wisdom. By the way, waiting on God's talent, especially in this day, we get all our answers pushing a button or clicking an icon on our smartphones. Waiting on God is a bigger talent now than it ever was. We don't do it too well. See, faith is not just a feeling or an abstract concept. It is an action. 
And I think maybe sometimes we need to translate it as a verb. One translation says, when you pray, you must believe God. That's what it means to pray in faith. Now, the thing about doubt is that it's the exact opposite of faith. It is, uh, uh, if you, you can't have two at the same time. You can't ask in faith and be doubting. They, the two are mutually exclusive of one another. So, Doubting is the opposite of believing. Doubting means to differentiate or to be divided amongst yourself, to waver between two alternatives or two choices or two opinions. That's doubting. I'd be interested sometime in seeing what the Chinese word for doubt is. I haven't looked at it. I just I, I remarked the other day that uh, uh, the Chinese word for confusion, true story, Chinese word for confusion shows, shows a picture of two women under the same roof. And, uh, and uh, if you try having six daughters. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's kind of an interesting uh, observation. But it means that a person who doubts is torn between his allegiance to God and this, this distrust that says, I don't know if God's actually going to take care of me. I don't know if God's actually going to handle my problems. It's kind of like, I know intellectually he's supposed to do these things, but I don't know if I can really trust him with my life here. That's, that's the problem that people get into. And so a good way to render this passage is, but when you pray, you must have confidence in God. You must have no doubt at all. We need to trust God, not have any doubt at all. And then he gives an illustration from nature. And I mentioned in our first week study in James how James was replete with illustrations from nature. And this is one of those illustrations. It says, but let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed about. So when he's talking about the surf and tossed about, he's talking about the height of the waves. Now, uh, Judy and I love to, to scuba dive, and we like to go out to the ocean. And I wanted to share that experience with my kids. I thought they'd have a great time. So... Uh, last time uh, we, we were in Florida, and that was my first experience of the waters in Florida, I, I took them on a snorkeling trip. So we got on this boat, and we went out. And, of course, uh, uh, the water was a, little, it was a little early in the day, and the water was a little choppy. And I didn't really appreciate just how choppy it was. Uh, and things are fine as long as the boat's moving. When the boat stops and, and there's big waves, the boat's going, ew, ew, ew. Uh, I forget how many times Hope threw up. While, while the boat was anchored there uh, twice. They're, I'm just being so, they're, they're disagreeing over here whether it's once or twice. I think it was, I know it was multiple times, so Christian is probably right. Uh, but Arthur and I hopped in the water because we were ready to snorkel. And of course, what I noticed when I got in into the water is that the waves, because we're snorkeling, which means we're on top of the water, and believe me, that's not where you want to be when there's a lot of waves. What you want to be is wearing scuba gear underneath the water because three feet down or so, the water's calm. But up there, it's just choppy. And I noticed I'm trying to, to swim out to this reef to see these fish, and they were beautiful. But the whole time, we're going hmm, up and down, up and down with, with the waves. And I can see how somebody that stayed in the boat was going to get sick. Somebody who didn't like the water like I do is not going to enjoy that as much. But it, did, it made it difficult to swim. But we've been other times when we've gone out on a boat in the middle of the ocean, we jump in the water by a reef, and, and it's, it's calm. Uh, Judy and I, on our last trip to Mexico, we had the opportunity. We're on a boat. We see a school of dolphins. They stopped the boat. We jumped in, and for a few minutes got to swim with about 10 dolphins out in the open ocean, which is pretty unique. 
Uh, but the, the waves were not choppy that day. It was decent, decent weather, and it wasn't a hard thing to be out in the water. But he says if you're a person with doubt, you're like, you're like the guy that's bobbing on the highways and is up and down. Your life is on a roller coaster because you're trying to trust God, but every time you think you've got your hand on trusting God, then you doubt on the next, and one minute you're feeling really good, the next minute you're, you're, you're in doubt, you have anxiety, you have panic attacks, you can't, you can't cope, and then the next minute you're trying to lay hold on your faith, and you're up and down and up and down. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, my life feels like a roller coaster lately? Maybe it's a problem with doubt. And then he also says they're driven by the wind. Now, this, this is talking about the frequency. On a, a calm day at the beach, the, the waves roll in gently. When the wind comes up and picks up the speed of the water, the waves come in sometimes much faster. And the thing is, no matter what ocean you happen to be on, or for that matter, on the side of a lake, the waves never stop. Now, I have seen it pretty calm before, on a lake, and I've seen it where it looked fairly placid, and I know back in my days when I did water skiing, I loved it when you would see a calm on the lake, because that was the best water skiing weather. Uh, but now, you know, you go to the ocean, the waves never stop. You get used to that. That's why you can buy sound machines with the sound of the ocean, because it just keeps coming in. When you have doubt, it's persistent. It's relentless. It keeps attacking you over and over again until you deal with the cause of that doubt. It's a persistent kind of thing. What we need is more of a childlike faith. When children come to their parents when they're very young, they have faith that mom and daddy can take care of practically anything. I still will never forget the time my oldest daughter came to me and she was about four years old and she had a tear in her eye because her favorite rubber band had broken. Now, believe it or not, kids get upset when the rubber band breaks, particularly if they were using it to power a little plane propeller or something like that. And she just came and she handed it to me. She said, Daddy, fix it. And I said, oh, look over there, Melody. And I went and grabbed another rubber band and said, here it is. It's working now. Now, I probably postponed too long letting her know that I couldn't solve all of her problems, but that day she still had faith to believe that I did. That's that childlike faith. Daddy can fix my rubber band. Uh, but we need to have a faith that relies on God. My children don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. Sometimes I do, <laughs> but, but they don't worry about that because they rely on their parents to provide for them. And if we doubt God's faithfulness or we question his answer that he's going to give us, then we can't really receive anything from him because it's kind of dishonoring to him. It's dishonoring him to, to say, I want you to answer this prayer and then go through life as though he's not going to. Not trusting him, not giving him the opportunity to show himself strong in our behalf. What is it, Second uh, Chronicles 16.9, I think, that says... Um, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect with him or right toward him. So hesitance about God or having a double-mindedness or depending on something besides God is just really another name for unbelief. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And what we need to do is have a single focus. Uh, if we're double-minded and we're looking to the Lord for our solutions and looking somewhere else at the same time, 
it, it's dishonoring to him. Uh, and God cannot honor the believer and answer his prayer when the believer does not honor him first. David expressed this better than anyone, I think, in Psalm 62, 5. He says, My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. We're to wait on God and only on Him. Now, you don't, you don't ask God for wisdom and then you, you go listen to all these other people talk about what they think you should do. And you ask your ungodly friends for what they think you should do. And you don't start collecting uh, a consensus of all your friends. Now, seeking godly counsel is okay. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. But the point is, you've got to listen to godly counselors. And you have, to, you have to first ask God for his wisdom. But I love that. He says, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Now, faith that is real faith acts upon God's will. I think one of the best examples of saving faith and a faith that acts is Abraham. Uh, two reasons, and I'm sure there's many more reasons I could cite from the life of Abraham, but the first was when God told Abraham to leave Ur, the Chaldees, and head out toward the promised land, and he says, everywhere that your foot trods on, that's going to be the land for all of your descendants. So basically everywhere you go, I'm going to give that to, to Israel when, when we name the nation that. It's, your descendants are going to have all this land. And then the other time was when he asked God to, to uh, when he, God asked Abraham to offer up Isaac, and uh, he knew that it was not Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman, but Isaac, the son of the free woman, that would inherit the promise. And he knew God had said it was through Isaac that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And yet God says, you have to offer up Isaac. And, and Abraham had to exercise his faith. He had to believe God was still going to bless through Isaac because God had already said that. But God had said, you're going to have to kill Isaac. And so how do you reconcile the two? So Abraham believed that. God must be going to be raising Isaac from the dead. Now that's some serious faith. Let's look at those two passages. Hebrews 8, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 9. This is the first instance. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out to a place that he was going to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in the land of promise as a stranger, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the fellow heirs of the same promise. Isn't that interesting? He, he goes out uh, not knowing where he was going. And yet uh, he believed that he was in God's will. And then later, a number of verses later actually in Hebrews, it says this. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac. And the one who received the promises was ready to offer his one and only son with reference to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants will be named. Having reasoned that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which he received him back also as a symbol. Uh, by the way, there's a, there's a whole sermon just in, in that verse because he was on Mount Moriah. There's a hill on Mount Moriah called Golgotha or Calvary. And when he got to the top and Isaac's on the way up, is carrying the wood on his back for the sacrifice, just as Jesus carried the cross on his back, Isaac asked his father, where's the sacrifice? We don't have anything. And uh, Abraham replied, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And he gets up there, he's ready to slay Isaac, and all of a sudden the angel stops his hand, uh, and then there is a ram caught in the thicket, and that ram becomes the substitutionary sacrifice for them. Uh, in the same way, Jesus on that same hill later gave up his life to be our substitute to provide us God's grace through atoning, uh, his atoning sacrifice. 
And it's interesting to me that Jesus said about Abraham, Abraham saw my day and was glad. I believe God gave Abraham a vision that on that same mountain, sometime in the distant future, that God would offer up his own son as a sacrifice as Abraham had been asked to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And just as Isaac came back down the mountain alive so that Jesus would come to life after his crucifixion. But beware the double-souled man. The word uh, dip, dipsikos here is used only here and in one other place, James chapter 4 and verse 8, uh, where it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, so it's used only in James. But it means that their mind, will, and emotions are like two people in one body. They intellectually believe the facts about God, but they refuse to rely on His strength and grace, and that person's not going to receive anything of the Lord. And this guy is unstable in all his ways. Uh, I wonder how quick they had to take that picture to get this guy balancing on a chair like that. But uh, certainly he's in an unstable situation. Uh, and that's what a double-minded man is like. So there's a key concept we need to walk away from here today as we bring this to a conclusion. And that is persistent doubt nullifies faith. We can say we have faith, but persistent doubt really is saying we don't. Faith receives because it trusts and relies on God the giver and doesn't doubt his ability to answer us. But doubt's rejected by God. And so prayer accompanied by doubt is a little bit like saying, I have faith, but not having any works to back it up. A problem that James is going to address in the next chapter of his, uh, his letter, his epistle to us. So doubt calls Jesus Lord, but puts no confidence in him. It dishonors him to the point where James is so concerned about his readers, he brings up this idea that if you are habitually in doubt, you might need to examine your faith and see if you're the real deal. Have you really asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Are you really trusting Him? Did you just go through the motions because you were at a camp meeting one time as a kid and, and your buddies went forward and they asked Jesus in their heart and you thought, oh, I'm going to do that too because you feel some emotional stirring and you went through the motions. I've seen kids that have done that. And then come back years later and they said, you know, I really wasn't saved. I really hadn't received Christ. I didn't understand what I was going to do. So James is emphatic that double-mindedness does not belong in the life of a believer. And because no part of our life remains unsullied by doubt. So a believer's divided thinking is, means he's got divided loyalties as well. And so his entire relationship with God and prayer is all marred by his faith. Being a Christian doubter ought to be an oxymoron. That's what James would say. He, he was saying the doubting believer holds back from active trust in God. And although these people claim to trust in God, they're not showing it by their way of life. They may pray the, the prayer profession, but they don't pray authentically. The prayer of surrender to God's will. Now, am I saying that if you're a Christian, you will never doubt God at all? No, I don't think I can say that. I think we're human. And I think we all tend to doubt once in a while. But the difference is, is that if we consistently, habitually doubt God, then I think we need to see, are we really in the faith? And if we do doubt God once in a while, we need to realize that doubt's not from the Lord. It's from Satan and it's from our flesh. James described a believer that's constantly driven by the wind and tossed about as being unstable, restless and everything. Their faith is warped and, and unauthentic. And habitual doubt should cause us to ask if our faith is real. Why should a person who doubts God expect God to give us anything? 
See, James' intent is to point out that doubting believers are constantly manifesting or giving evidence of the fact that they, their faith isn't authentic, that they, their faith is ineffective. And this, by the way, goes throughout all of chapter 1. We're going to hear this repeated over and over again, that inadequate faith is a problem. And God, James wants us to rely on him wholly, particularly as we deal with trials. So as Brother Dennis gets ready to lead us in song, what should we be doing today? Well, if our faith is authentic, then I think we need to daily start asking God for wisdom. If you haven't been doing that as a habit of your life, I want to encourage you from this day forward, even if you don't remember anything else, when you get up in the morning, maybe you're in a hurry, you've got to get off to work, and uh, it, it's late, uh, take time to ask God for wisdom. By the way, I have to confess, I did not know there was a time change this morning. I set my alarm for 5.45, and I got up at 5.45 and surprisingly didn't feel in great pain. I think the secret to me not being in pain is only staying in bed about four and a half hours. That seems to be my limit. After that, I hurt. And, uh, uh, and it was kind of like I, I, being unaware of the time change, I, I felt amazingly good. And then somebody told me the time had changed, and I thought, oh, I should feel tired right now. Uh, but I'm, I'm just choosing to, to believe, see, my, my watch advanced and my phone advanced, the computers advanced, so I was oblivious to the time change until we were on the way to church, and Judy was explaining to Christiana why she was uh, tired. Uh, but the thing is, we should daily pray for wisdom, and we should daily seek for it. I just want to encourage you, if you don't pray for anything else, get up in the morning and pray for wisdom, and then spend a few minutes with your Bible. Maybe just read one chapter of Proverbs. That's all you got time for. Read one chapter of Proverbs. Maybe read a few verses of Proverbs, but then chew on them. Think about what they mean while you're, while you're driving to the office or while you're you know, starting to telecommute to the office, as the case may be. But, but you, pray for wisdom. I don't think a single day goes by we don't need to do that. I think that that has been my number one habit for years, and I think it should constantly be our habit. But if we claim to have faith but we fail to rely on God, then we really need to examine to see how real our faith is. If I say I have faith but I don't trust God, am I, am I the real deal? James would say, maybe not. Maybe you need to learn how to ask God without doubting. Maybe you need to learn to really accept Him and really trust Him because otherwise your prayers are ineffective. Well, as we have our invitation song, uh, it's a song we're all very familiar with, and uh, it should be the prayer of our hearts for God to take our life and let it be consecrated to him.